Hi, this is State Delegate Janelle Wilkins from District 20 in Montgomery County, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the best source of news and notes on Maryland politics and policy. The Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, busy day today. I'm really excited. We have a, a, a really special guest today, so I'm not even going to give you the, the time to do an intro. I'm going to go ahead and jump right into it. We have Perfect. with us, yeah, we have with us Congressman David Trone, who is in his second term representing Maryland's sixth district. That's a district including Western Maryland, but also stretching southward into Montgomery County. He's building on a business background, but has become a strong advocate on criminal justice and public health issues. Representative Trone, thank you so much for joining us. We're very grateful to have you on, Congressman. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Well, we we, we appreciate your time and, and a little bit of background here for our podcast audience are mostly folks who have focused on the state and local level for politics and policy. And so our eyes tend to focus on Annapolis rather than Washington. Um, I want to take a moment, if I can, and, and and talk a little bit about your district and serving such such a large, spacious district. And, and since this is kind of a county-focused podcast, I'll try and weasel in our county officials a little bit. Um, I'm interested in how you, in representing a big district, how you've built relationships with local governments and, and the officials in, in the counties and municipal governments in your district and using them as sort of a bridge to the different communities over a big geographically diverse district. Are those partnerships important for you to do your work well at the federal level? That's uh, a great question. And it's uh, really key to success, you know, as a businessman, you know, the whole way you win is create win-win uh, relationships. And I work for, you know, all those state and uh, local office holders, and they're part of my team. Um, I look at them all part of uh, being Team Trone, uh, Team Six District, Team Maryland. Uh, so, you know, being uh, accessible, meeting them where they are, really spending time in the district, I mean, I'm out all the time in Garrett, Allegheny, Washington, Frederick counties, and you've really got to, can't just say, hey, I live in Montgomery County, and that's great, I'm there all the time, but but I've got to go out and be uh, across the state, and then identify and work with the local uh, state and local leaders, and then work with them about what their communities need. Uh, one of the best things we've done recently, and uh, I'm lucky to be on the Appropriations Committee uh, my second term, and uh, it's a huge honor. And uh, we just got approved, you know, $33 million for FY23, uh, which is a over 300% increase from FY22 uh, on appropriations through community project funding. These projects all came from the folks I've met in the last three years in Frederick and Hagerstown and Cumberland, Oakland. And they've identified things that need to get done in their community to make their communities work better. Democrats working with Republicans side by side and all about how to help people. And then they put these together and send them in and we get them signed off on with appropriations. These things are gonna all happen. Uh, and that's a great day. 
Um, it's so much better to have local leaders telling us what they need to be done, not some bureaucrat in <laughs> Washington at an agency saying, here's what's needed for Hagerstown. That is a loser. That'll never work. We got to be local. Um, I'll give you an example quickly on SNAP Second Chance Act. This is something I work hard with returning citizens and um, Mark Wilkes, Wilkes, who I met up in, in, uh, at Carmen's store in Hagerstown, a store he owns, and he's uh, spent almost 20 years, I think, in prison and in an extensive criminal record, but now he's out. He's paid his, paid his price. He's an awesome entrepreneur, and he, like everyone, deserves a second chance. And so right now, a SNAP retailer doesn't have the ability to take SNAP benefits in his store. So he can't take uh, the dollars that the USDA has put out. So these small business owners uh, are not allowed to do it. So we heard about Mark's story. And if we hadn't known about it and hadn't been in Hagerstown to learn about it, uh, you know, we couldn't bring this issue up and work on a federal solution. So it's listening and more listening and listening local. Well, you're, you're, you're singing you're singing right off the, the, the song sheet for the Maryland Association of Counties with our local officials. And, and like, just like you said, this is a federal program, you know, SNAP being the, yeah, the new and improved term for what a lot of folks still refer to as food stamps, but nutrition assistance for lots and lots of Americans, making sure that's a fit for communities where it may not have been designed perfectly at the federal level. I mean, sometimes it's going to take an effort through the legislative process to refine and improve those sorts of things. But you hearing it from those partners on the ground, whether they're elected officials or local business leaders or whomever, that's, that's the way to get things done. Um, same thing in Annapolis, but very much so in DC. Um, and sometimes that's going to take that, that, you know, bipartisan effort. So um, exactly you're hitting it right in the bullseye as far as we're concerned, I think. Uh, I couldn't be in more agreement. It's, uh, listen and work local. Yeah, we, we love to hear that. Absolutely. And just changing gears a little bit, but along, along a lot of the same lines of, of stuff you're talking about, I think that the dimensions of representing an area with three quarters of a million people, that's just different from the state legislature where MAKO does most of our work. And so is the organization in the House of Representatives. The committee system is really different. So in Annapolis, you sit on one committee, each bill process is simple, it runs through one committee, but in Congress, there's a lot more overlap and process. Tell us about your committee assignments and what you have focused on and, and what has influenced you as a result of being on those committees. Well, first term, I was on uh, education, labor, and also foreign affairs. And, you know, we are a big supporter of labor and, and foreign uh, education is obviously the long-term solution to so many of our issues that face our country. And have a chance to be in foreign affairs, I felt was a way we could keep track and add thoughtful uh, common sense to decisions that we make, you know, across the world. Then the second term here, I was given the option opportunity um, I wasn't given it. I had to lobby like crazy. <laughs> there were 52 people in a steering committee. I called all 52 before anybody called any of them. And as you guys know, when you call someone and say six months before anybody's thinking about it, would you support me for appropriations? The answer was, well, no one else has called. Of course I will. 
And I, I met with Speaker Pelosi and she said, David, it took me five terms to get on appropriations. This is your second term. I said, Madam Speaker, I'm not looking to be here forever and die in my boots. I said, we gotta get some stuff done. Then as a business guy, you know, all my life working for myself, all I give a damn about is getting stuff done. And approach is where we got the money. And so I really think it's the right committee for me. I waved on the veterans as an assist extra committee. And my father was a vet in World War II. I got 42,000 vets in my district. Uh, I think veterans have a lot of issues right now with PTSD and mental health challenges, uh, suicides, addiction. And as you guys know, the top things that I work on in Congress are uh, addiction and number one and mental health number two. And so my number three is veterans and how it relates to their addiction and mental health. Uh, so those are the pieces that I really focus on. Then, of course, medical research. Uh, the NIH gets us an eight to one ROI on medical research. Hmm. So I help drive NIH spending and all this stuff is coming through appropriations. So uh, just this week, uh, we got three bills that I wrote coming out of energy and commerce. Um, Recovery Housing Act is the first one that's coming out and providing you know grants to the state to implement best practices for recovery housing. If we do it here, you know, you know, we got to get the states involved in this, that local piece again of best practices. And, you know, the states then can put this together. Uh, we have an interagency working group to coordinate, you know, what's happening at the government level, um, get reports back. Uh, so these are be part of a massive uh, energy and commerce package that's coming out this week on mental health and substance use. Uh, and in that package, you know, we have more bills than anybody does, and we're not even on the committee. And so that, that's a good thing. Uh, but we worked hard to get our bills uh, so they're relevant, they make sense, the committee supports them, and they're bipartisan. And so by getting everything bipartisan, the committee knows we can get our bills through the U.S. Senate. So pass a bill in the House is like, who gives a damn? It's nice, but we got to pass the Senate, and we need 60 votes, right. we need 10 Republicans. So let's get real, buddy, and, and, you know, and focus on getting things that can actually happen in the Senate. So that's how we, we look at a lot of this. And, and, and Congressman, I mean, there's a lot there that, that obviously connects directly to county governments. But I, I know that, you know, dealing with substance abuse and opioids, and I think talking about NIH and all that medical research is so important for addiction and for veterans issues. We know the research that, that's going on to help stuff like PTSD. But I, I do want to get into opioids, and that's something that affects county governments deeply. We've been on the front lines in the fight against opioids and addiction. I know you have been really committed to that effort and that your family has been affected like so many of our neighbors and so many of our loved ones. Can you talk a little bit more about your efforts to keep working to, to curb the opioid crisis and, and how you think we can, we can really start to move the ball even more so than what we have? Because I think a lot of people coming out of this pandemic, hopefully coming out of this pandemic, have sort of forgotten about the epidemic that is still going on, not just here in Maryland, but across the country. And I know you're doing a lot of work there. So I want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about that as well. Uh, you nailed it. It's the uh, coming out of the pandemic. The number one problem in America is addiction, overdoses, 
We lost 107,000 Americans in 2021 to overdoses. 70-some thousand of those were fentanyl. Uh, it's personal to me. I lost my nephew. I spent five years working with him through rehabs and various arrests and mental health uh, issues. All these things travel together. And, you know, we are better than what we have been. It's over a million Americans now dead since the Oxycontin and the Sackler family started this in the late 90s to now a million people, the same as COVID. And Stanford predicts another 1.2 million in the next decade by 2029. So we got a bunch of stuff going. I co I'm co-chair of the Bipartisan Addiction Mental Health Task Force. We've got over 70 some bills, mental health, substance use, everyone bipartisan. I got 140 members on that task force, biggest task force there is. And, you know, this stuff, we're working them through the committees. A number have already been signed by the president. I just served a year on the Commission on Combating Synthetic Opioid Trafficking. Uh, I was elected co-chair with a very conservative uh, Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas, Republican from Arkansas. And he and I met day one. And Tom is hard right. And, you know, I'm more moderate and progressive. And we agreed, you know, we got to be bipartisan. We need a roadmap, roadmap for the executive branch, roadmap for legislative branch. And over a year and, you know, a hundred and some hearings and intelligence briefings, going to Mexico City, going to the border of the Southwest, we have over 76 recommendations uh, to put forth. So we're driving those through Congress. And we partnered locally. Emily Keller, mayor of Hagerstown, done a great job. Jan Gardner, last in Frederick, last year we did a behavioral health crisis stabilization center grant that I got for Frederick. Another behavioral health crisis service center grant I got for Washington County and another telehealth expansion grant for Ever, every mine for Montgomery County. So, you know, we're working with the counties and what they need. And in the 23, a whole bunch more, all county focused. I, th I think, I think Congressman, it's, you've made connections with the topic areas that you've really decided to focus on and how they connect back to your district. And I think that's admirable. I'm, on the opioid issue, I think for some time, I mean, the numbers you drop about the, the number of casualties of our fellow Americans we've, we've already lost and that there's the threat of, of this wave over the next decade still being, you know, such horrifying numbers is, is, is sobering. Um, you know, one of those things that we hear at the local level so frequently is we, we just need more beds. We need more treatment space and Sometimes that's beyond the grasp of a small county government or a town or the local health department to say, we just, you know, we need 28 beds. And that's where partners at the federal level who can find grant funding to prop up the, those resources that we need locally, you know, you're going to hear from the leaders on the ground where, where we need the help, being able to deliver some of those resources. And that'll come along with what the, the counties and cities are doing themselves. We're, we're, we're anticipating some resources through settlements from the manufacturers and the distributors. You know, the part of that is the next decade ahead is resources coming from those who have profited off of this business. But it takes all of those things to try and make 
the next decade hopefully look better than the last decade on this opioid front. Is that is that a fair way to pull it together? Uh, I think you nailed it. Uh, our recovery housing bill talks about that. When someone wants to go into rehab, they need that crisis stabilization center, which we just talked about. We uh, provided for those. And after that, we need recovery housing. I uh, had a meeting today with the former governor of Kentucky, and he's now deeply involved in recovery housing, having had losses in his family. And it, there's been so many losses that now it matters to so many people. And it wasn't that way 10 years ago, but the, just the carnage is what's bringing everybody into this issue. President Biden said it's number one addiction on his unity agenda and mental health number two for President Biden. And so the beds, we've got to get it. There's more to do. And we got to get consistent quality of recovery housing. And I've seen it personally, terrible recovery housing, just incompetence. So we're working on standardizations for that. That's another piece I'm involved in. Well, you can see how these issues have overlaps with one another. And as you speak through them, you're sort of naturally moving from topic to topic. But I think for our listeners, that's an important takeaway is we we tend to think of policy issues as being in silos. Well, we, we can talk about the opioid crisis and we can talk about the need for mental health services. We can talk about housing housing challenges and and for for uh, the population who are in transition back into society from an incarcerated state and so forth. And these on the surface as words, they can sound like, boy, these are all a bunch of separate challenges. But as, as you speak through them, I think it becomes clear. These are very much connected and, and you're seeing the populations in and around your district. You, you can't just say, well, I only care about the opioid problem. I'm not focused on mental health concerns. You, you've already you know, you've already taken up that effort to really advocate to boost treatment options and support for mental health and, and, and make sure that's available to the communities who need it as well. Right? Yeah, totally right on. And, and the third piece of that uh, triangle is criminal justice and reform and addiction is a disease. Addiction is not a crime. And America's treated it like the crime that it's not. And we've incarcerated literally millions of people that do not deserve to be incarcerated. They deserve to be helped. And so criminal justice has been a priority of um, my wife and I for over 20 years. Uh, We partnered early on with the American Civil Liberties Union. And through my foundation, we set up the Trone Center in New York City. It's a Trone Center for Justice and Equality. So all the criminal justice reform work uh, comes through uh, our center at the ACLU. Uh, But these works in criminal justice have also got to be bipartisan or you'll never get it through the Senate. And one of my favorite bills, which we're moving on, is called the Fresh Start Act. And that's the folks that are returning citizens. And my company has hired over 500 returning citizens and we get a 14% better retention rate. That means win-win, second chances are smart business, they're smart public policy, but our Fresh Start Act, which cleans the records on state expungement processes, providing the funds to the states to do that so that folks can get a job because a returning citizen has a job. They can get a roof over their head, 
and transportation to the job. But without a job, they've got nothing. And we're going to have to continue the prison-to-prison cycle. It'll never stop. And it's an embarrassment and a crime. That's what we have in America. But we're getting support. Uh, On this Fresh Start Act, I have Republican, former Navy SEAL, conservative, Congressman Dan Crenshaw from Texas, Mm -hmm. co-sponsor, and uber-progressive, Democrat, Corey Bush from Missouri. So there I've got the hard left, the hard right, right, and I brought them together. And right. it's like, let's, let's help these people get a job, man. I mean, where are we, nuts? And we all agree on this. Well, I, I think that, that definitely sends a message to try and, I mean, that's one way to send a message. The contents of the bill and the goals of the bill are one way to do it. But sometimes you send a message with the list of co-sponsors and reaching out the way you have is one way to try and posture that issue. I, 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 will, I will share with you that in, in setting up this conversation, we had having some conversations with, with, your, with your staff and, and, and Sasha has been great to work with. I, I was prepared to try and make this into a lobbying pitch and try and convince you, Congressman, to, to try and take up an issue that we've been sensitive on. I was describing to Sasha, we've had these concerns about inmate health care. And this, this, uh, this affects the, the state prisons as well as county jails and correctional centers. And you know, we've got these a number of problems with, with health care for the incarcerated population, which is you know, adjacent to what you were just speaking to. And, and I was pitching this, you know, what we really need, we, there may be some solutions at the state level, but it's the Medicaid eligible population who becomes incarcerated and suddenly we just wipe the slate clean that those folks were covered by Medicaid previously. You end up with a crazy burden for their care while they're incarcerated. And then lots of folks have trouble getting reestablished in, as Medicaid eligible once they're released it's sort of like a, a double whammy on the same population. And that's a group that it doesn't serve anybody's interest for them to be undercovered for, for healthcare, whether it's physical care and preventive care and mental health and all those things, things together. Sasha, you know, let me know. He, he's, he's already a leader on this issue. You don't need to sell him. He's probably going to take it from there. So we're interested in, in hearing you talk about that. I mean, you've already gotten into these issues that, that you've been focusing on, but as Marylanders know, there's there are a number of correctional facilities that are in the western part of Maryland. So that's part of the contours of your district. You've taken up this issue pretty aggressively, well, right? Inmate healthcare, another of your related focus topics. No, oh, inmate inmate healthcare is an a uh, uh, embarrassment uh, to us. I mean, we have five percent, four point three percent of the world's population, twenty five percent of the world's people incarcerated. 4-3 to 25. Now that just tells you right now, our system's broken and absolutely systemically racist. So, and then what we do while folks are incarcerated is another embarrassment. Uh, one of the bills we have out now is Due Process Continuity, uh, Continuity of Care Act. And again, it's that, as you spoke, the Medicaid inmate exclusion policy denies Medicaid coverage when you're arrested and without even being convicted. And then when you're incarcerated, you're also denied. So, I mean, how can we say someone has been arrested, not even adjudicated, uh, they lose their coverage on Medicaid, they can't get mental health coverage, 
They can't get anything. I mean, that's nuts. Two thirds, you know, of our pretrial detainees are being held in local jails and they've got no Medicaid coverage. Uh, so our bill, uh, the due process bill, is going to help fix that. And again, it's bipartisan. Republicans, Emmer, Minnesota, Turner. And it hurts our most vulnerable populations disproportionately affecting low income folks who can't pay the bail bond money to get out and while they're waiting to be at waiting to go to trial. So and then what we do when folks are incarcerated, the lack of a plan. So I've got something I'm working on with the Bureau of Prisons. And the first thing we had to do was get the head fired. So that's not accomplished. Now we're going to get a new head. I talked to Attorney General Garland about it two weeks ago. We got to get a new head in of the Bureau of Prisons as quick as we can. I went over all this with Garland in an appropriations hearing. From that, we're going to address what I call an opportunity pipeline, and that's creating jobs for returning citizens that they know they're going to get in the city they're going to return to before they leave incarceration. So if you're in Hagerstown and you're leaving in six months incarceration, you need to have a, you need a job lined up to return to it, maybe Greensboro, North Carolina, or Seattle, Washington, and you've already got the job, and we got folks like J.P. Morgan, Amazon, FedEx, UPS, Target, all these companies on board that have an interest in this, and it's great for them from a PR standpoint, but they need workers. They need workers. And if folks can get a job, they're going to not recidivate. But if they don't have a job, there's no chance that they're going to make it. We're wasting $80 billion a year on incarceration. We should take that X billions and pay it forward to help folk when they come out with the housing, the wraparound treatment for mental health, for medically assisted treatment. That bill I'm driving also. That's going to pass ENC, the MAT bill, the MAT bill this week. So you know, a lot of balls I'm, we're bouncing on this, uh, but I'm pretty passionate about how outrageously bad it is. Well, I, I, in my judgment, I think that's that's a key to being effective in a large deliberative body like like the United States Congress and and the House of Representatives to to tackle some issues, become a leader, and become passionate, right? I mean, we you know we can tell over the airwaves you're not reading talking points, you're not you're not just doing the ABCs, but you've dug into these issues and. You're hip deep in that this stuff, and it shows. Um, that that's the way you get those big bipartisan sponsor lines, and you get moving with the bills that that are your priority. So hats off to you for for digging into these topics. They're not the most thrilling, you know. They're not the stuff that necessarily is you know a one above the fold all the time, but it's awfully important stuff. So we're we're grateful for your efforts on that, and I know that the corrections community and county government will be really happy to hear of, of, of your efforts and, and your uh, focus on this. Uh, there's no question. And the issue, is, it all goes back to one of my heroes is Hubert Humphrey. And Hubert Humphrey talked about those that are in the shadows. And if we try and stand as a voice for those, and I mean, I don't, I'm a business guy. I've got, you know, employees all over 27 states around the country, uh, but I'm here on a mission. And that's why I ran for office. And that mission Addiction, mental health, criminal justice, 
medical research, but it's really getting government to think long term. This government is broken because it thinks in two year cycles, it's about just getting elected, raising money, and we should be thinking about our children and our children's children. And if we put that in the crucible of each decision we make, we'll make the right decision and we'll think long term. But we got to look out to the next generation and the next generation and just keep doing the same old damn things the same old damn way is a pretty damn bad idea. We got to embrace change and people hate change. But down here, you're right. It's working across the aisle. They can feel your commitment. They see your hard work. I mean, I spend my time on the Republican side working on getting everybody on my bills and driving my bills. And then I even go over there and drive my fellow members' bills, like the MAP bill. I was over there driving that last week. Another bill called the MATE bill, getting medical training on addiction as recurring training for doctors. We're going to pass that this week. Again, not my bill. I'm a co-sponsor, but I didn't write the bill but I'm gonna put equal work in to other people's bills that are damn good bills. And we just gotta work on getting shit done. Uh, that's all it is. Yeah, no, I certainly appreciate that. And, and you know, I think that is, that is a refreshing attitude, especially to hear from somebody in DC. We, we know how it goes. We know that, you know, things move slowly, but I know you're passionate. I know we're running short on time as well. I wanted to, to just give you an opportunity to, I knew you grew up on a, on a farm in a rural town near Gettysburg. And back then you relied on electricity and reliable roads to, to do business and support your family. Today, it's all about broadband, right? And especially amidst the pandemic, Tying this back to mental health, one of the best ways to access mental health treatment and stay safe is through the internet, through high-speed internet. You represent a lot of rural areas. This is not just a rural issue, but we've seen through the CARES Act and ARPA and the, the, the infrastructure bill, a lot of federal money coming down for broadband and to make sure everyone has that access. This is something that you're passionate about as well. Do, do you have any thoughts there and, and what we can do here in Maryland to make sure that we make the most of, of those investments that are coming down from the federal government? Uh, it's uh, phenomenally important to get this broadband money. I mean, the first day one, when I visited the, the district out in Western Maryland, and you know, you saw the number one need they have is broadband. The COVID crushed their, the children out there that didn't have broadband. Out in Garrett County and Allegheny, it's 30 to 40% did not have high-speed broadband. How can the kids keep up? They couldn't. So the kids fell further behind. That's a train wreck. Then people couldn't, can't telework out there. So that's a train wreck. And then your point on telemedicine, I mean, telemedicine is the future. It's the way we're going to drive medical costs down. And telemental health, what a home run. That was a win that we got out of COVID. We learned that people showing up for their appointments and being there with telemental is like, eight times better than what we had before. They just, it made it happen. So that one we got to keep and we will, and we'll figure out how to make all this telemental work and telehealth across state lines. I mean, it's nuts that providers in Pennsylvania, West Virginia can't help in Maryland. It's insanity. So the telehealth, uh, the telemental, we really got to roll it out. And, you know, it's just uh, a, a boatload, of, a boatload of money and just last week, I had a, a talk with the woman that's the director that's driving the biggest pocket of that, which is $42.5 billion. And, you know, working with her on how we can expedite 
and work with the right telecommunication uh, companies that will also give us cost of uh, the right cost. So a bunch of companies have said, we'll do it for $30 a month. And it's not just having it there, it's having it affordable for those lower income homes. And at $30 a month, that's where you need to be. So we're working with the Department of Commerce to get that done. Uh, so my folks in my district are all using the right providers that are gonna give us the right cost. There's no use hooking up to someone that's gonna overcharge us. No doubt, no doubt. And, and Representative Jerome, we've covered a lot of ground here. We want you to get back to work doing the great work for, for the people across the state of Maryland. And we know you are, we know you're busy. Do you have anything else you might wanna drop here for our listeners, policy wonks like us from across the state? All I can say is for the wonks among us, and we would count ourselves in that group happily and uh, being honored to be there. You know, we don't give a damn about CNN or MSNBC. It's about getting shit done. And we appreciate all the uh, focus you give and can give on addiction and mental health. It takes away the stigma and it begins to bring these into the mainstream so we can get help and help those that are you know lost in the shadow without a voice. So thank you for that. Thank you so much, Representative Trone. We really appreciate your time. And again, it's an honor to have you on. We're going to go ahead and leave it there for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, the Conduit Street blog. But for Congressman David Trone and Michael Sanderson, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon. <laughs>